Yeah, praise God. Amen. Good to have a seat, church. Uh, welcome to NBC. If this is your first time here, uh, we're so glad you're here. If you've been with us a long time, we're glad you're here. Happy New Year. Let me go ahead and wish that to you. I wasn't here last, last weekend. Em and I were on a road trip. I'll, I'll talk about it here in just a second. Um, but what I want to do is, is to let you know that God, in His mind's eye, He knows that this can be a year in which your life changes for the better in ways that you probably can't imagine at this point. And that if you will dedicate yourself to Him in a fresh way, in a new way, in the way that Scripture calls us to do, that you may be shocked at how powerful the outbreaking of God's Spirit in your life might be. So my desire for you, my Happy New Year kind of admonition, my charge to you is to say, hey, church, look, 2021 may be something you just look back at it and you go, you know what, dude, I'm just going to wipe that thing off my shoe and keep going on because that that year was kind of bleh. And the year before that might have been, uh, and your last 10 years may have been, hmm, right? This is 2022, all right? So let's try to resubmit ourselves to what the Bible has to say uh, to us about what it means to be dedicated to the Lord. Uh, We went on a a road trip, the Spivey family did. We did something we've never done before. We're very much a planning kind of family. Uh, and so we usually plan these things out well in advance. Most people do. Uh, this year, however, due to a combination of the tyranny, the urgent, poor parental planning, and a slight desire to mix it up, we decided that we would do a spontaneous road trip. Now, if you're going, what in the world is that? That is a road trip that's spontaneous, okay? <laughs> It's one that you wake up and literally the agenda is we go when we want to go, we stop when we want to stop, uh, we, we just kind of get in the car, and so the day after Christmas we all got in the car and we just started driving. And it's like, okay, we're going let to the, let the spirit lead as we get, and so um, often what happens in those situations, as you might imagine, is the spirit leads everybody differently. And so you end up having some passionate discussions about where one ought to go, stop, uh, where we should eat, everything, all this stuff that you typically get with a well-planned road trip, except you get very few of the benefits of a planned road trip. Now, having said that, we had some moments. We had some moments. First, first thing we did, we went from Escondido all the way to Redding, California, which is way north from here. Redding is where Em and I finally got a chance to uh, go into ministry together. We showed our kids our first house before they were ever born. They say, this is where your mom and your dad lived before you were on the earth, and, uh, and took them to see the first little church that, that, that I preached in. Uh, and everything, and just kind of had a little aw shucks moments. Then we said, all right, let's go through the snowy mountains up there. We're going to head over to like Eureka and do that. that. That's when things started to wobble a little bit on the trip. So day one was a smashing success. Day two wobbled a bit. We got almost all the way through the snowy mountains, cut backs on snow and ice, only to find out that the road was closed near the end of the thing. So we had to go all the way backward, all the way back through the mountains to where we were. They couldn't let us through. They couldn't do anything about it. There were like 40 trees that had dropped on the road. And I couldn't get rid of them. So we go all the way back, have to go all the way south, then all the way over to the coast, and then all the way back up north. It took us about seven hours to do that. Um, and so by the time it was done, and of course, while my family is, is admiring the beauty of the snow and the ice and the flocks of strange animals that are, are gathering all around, I'm doing this because I'm trying not for, to, to kill all of us. So, so when we got through the, the thing, they were all, oh, that was a beautiful drive, wasn't it? And that's like, oh, oh. Uh, no gas station for like 180 miles. It was a mess. We get through it. We do Eureka. Uh, we stayed in one of these hotels because we didn't know really what we were going to stay at. Um, we stayed in this hotel that was creepy, dude, like 
creepy. And so we, I got on. I was like, I wonder what people say about this hotel. And there's like a whole bunch of like, uh, is that hotel haunted? Did somebody get murdered at this hotel? <laughs> so we all stayed in that hotel, and it was creepy. It was one of those like you feel like the paintings have eyes that, that stare at you while you sleep kind of a thing. Get out of that. We head off the next day to the Redwoods. Never seen the Redwoods. I've been in California my whole life. Never been up that far uh, to actually see the Redwoods. So I was excited. And one of the things I wanted to do was drive our car through a tree. Like, that's awesome. I mean, right? I mean, who don't, if there's a tree with a big enough hole in it, who didn't want to drive through the tree? Everybody does. I wanted to do this. So I said, this is the year. We're up here. We're going to do it. We're going to see the Redwoods. I was freezing. It was, it was like 40 degrees and it was raining. So we were happy to be inside the car. And we decided, hey, we're going to I, I, there were three spots. I guess I thought there was just one, but there's three redwoods that you can drive your car through. We picked this one, and, it, and it's, um, this is in, I know, isn't it cool? Yeah, uh, it's called the Chandelier Tree, and it's in Loggett, California. Uh, and so this is out in, the, in Mendocino there, kind of in the whole place where all the redwoods are. We were all excited. The guy charges me 10 bucks to get in. So we were already off on a bad foot. Because uh, I thought, hey, you know, this ought to, this ought to be free. And, what, you know, why pay taxes if you can't at least drive your car through a tree? You know, what's the point? You know, so then we get in there, we drew this whole thing. And then, you know, as we get in there, I notice the hole doesn't seem to be quite as big as it seems in the pictures. So here's an actual scale shot of the hole and how big it is. So it's a lot, a lot smaller than it looks from the picture, right? So as we get a little closer, and we're, we're in li like a line of cars, I start to see, you know, kind of looking at the roof of the car and in like a typical male. I'm like, oh, we can make it for sure. We can totally make this. So we get in there. I'm like, maybe we ought to get out and butter the sides of the car, do something like that. I think we can make it. And, 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 and I, was, I was wrong. We couldn't make it. We ended up getting stuck inside the tree. So the Spiveys leave a mark wherever they go. And this time... California left a mark on the Spiveys in our car. Um, the best part was hearing it's the sounds that stick with you of the squealing of the paint on our car and the tree. So, so there's actually a website of pictures of people who get stuck inside this particular tree. This isn't our car, but this is an example. That's a VW bus stuck there. Um, and, and, and I sat there and I go, you know what? If all we had done was a little research, right? Every website on the planet tells you to be careful to not drive a car that's too big through that tree hole. Every website. There's a whole website devoted to people getting stuck on the inside, and most of the car pictures look like our GMC Acadia, getting stuck in the middle of the tree. But I didn't do it, and so my goal of having a leisurely stroll in this miraculous drive through, I mean, we should have gotten out. We could have gotten out taking a family picture. We all could have stood on our head like that guy in the picture before. We could have built a little cheerleader pyramid with little Nora at the top, all smiling and taking a picture. We could have done any of that, but we couldn't. You know why? Because we didn't have a plan. We didn't plan. We go where the wind blows. When we stop, when we feel like we want to stop, we stop. When we go, we want to go. We say go, and we go. And we missed it. In fact, not only did we not get everything out of it we could have, it did damage to us. <laughs> because we didn't do enough setting of goals or however you want to put it. See, goals, I am a planner type. I, like I, this is my time of year, man. I, I'm usually about October, November. I go to Barnes & Noble. I buy a, I, a, a couple of planners. 
And it is honestly one of the highlights of my year. I sit down with blank pages, calendars, plans. I get to look at my year. I get to draw cool lines. I get to map it all out. I love that. So doing this trip was a huge stretch for me. I don't know that I'll do it again. We readjusted our car once and for all. In fact, now we can say when we sell it, authentic California redwood smell and marks on the mirrors and the sides uh, and everything. Uh, The problem with taking a spontaneous trip anywhere, really, is you end up missing out on the things that you could have done because you weren't ready. And when your goal is to have no goal, you always reach that goal. You, you, you accomplish nothing, usually, which is okay on vacation, right? It's okay to, like, you know, go to, a, go to a resort or something and just not have a plan for the next day. You can just wake up and say, hey, I don't know, maybe I'll sit by the pool, maybe I'll go see a movie or whatever. That's one thing, right? Vacation, do what you want. Like, vacation's fine. Life, though, you don't want to go through your life going, ah, I, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, figure out what I want to do in the moment. It'll be fine. Yeah, tomorrow, it's Monday. I'll just wake up. If I feel like getting up, I'll get up. Feel like going to work, I'll go to work. Feel like feeding my kid, I will. Feel like breathing, yeah. I mean, we all understand the absurdity of that in, in, in life, I hope. But when you're talking about the spiritual realm, your walk with the Lord, the weightiest things that this life has to offer, What Scripture tells us to do is your life has a goal. If you're a Christian, it has a goal. It really has one goal. And then underneath that goal is everything else. The rest is kind of negotiable. Your spontaneity comes in submission to that goal. And that goal is to love God with everything. Everything. Every day, every minute, all the time. That's the pursuit The Bible would tell us that God didn't give us life for us to just simply enjoy like a road trip, simply to be some sort of adventure with no aim or purpose. Great vacation, bad life. Dorothy Canfield Fisher once said, she says, if we would only give just once the same amount of reflection to what we want to get out of life that we give to the question of what to do with our two weeks vacation, we would be startled at our false standards and the endless procession of our busy days. I mean, think about it. Right now, you may already know where you're going on summer vacation next year, or this year, I guess it is now. Uh, you probably may know where you're going for spring break, President's Day weekend. You may know where you're eating lunch already. Okay, so you're planning, right? You have this thing, I, this is what I want to do, this is where I want to go. But then the question is, okay, why not pay the same at least, but maybe longer, greater, more intentional focus on the matters of the Spirit the things that actually are the substance of your life, the things that God puts you on the earth to do, the relationship to your Creator who's not only Almighty but also your closest friend. Why not Him? Why not focus with that laser intensity on the things of God? This series is a series about dedication. We, as Christians, are dedicated to God. There's a truth claim that falls from the lips of Jesus in Mark 12 that we'll get to. And it, but he says, there is nothing greater, there's nothing more important in this life than loving God with everything. And to do that means that you must be dedicated to doing so. 
Now, dedication, when we use that word over the course of the next four weeks here, we're going to use it as a noun and a verb, all right? So when I say dedicate or dedication, noun and verb, okay? Call it a nerb. It's a combination of the two. When we're talking about it as a noun, it's a descriptor, okay? It's something that says we are consecrated. We are set apart for God, okay? As a verb, when we use it, we're saying it in the sense of being really committed to something. So it's not uh, just simply uh, being dedicated to it like we might be dedicated to, uh, oh, I don't know, I'm going to binge watch this series in one sitting, although I guess people can rise to that kind of dedication. This is different. This is a, this is a um, you cannot stop me from doing this level of dedication. We were talking in the lobby, uh, Marcus Preciado and I were earlier, um, we, we've got one of our, our own that's training for a championship fight or a, or a boxing match. And when you're doing that, you focus. You are dedicated to it because if you don't, somebody's going to bust your face open. So you pay attention to what you eat, to how you work out, uh, to what you allow into your head. You set yourself apart, if you will, for that purpose. To be dedicated to God, to say, I am going to, to, to make the single focus of my life, loving God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, okay, means that we will dedicate ourselves to that cause. So we'll use it as a verb and a noun. The verb means we're actually doing this. I am dedicating myself to it. The dedication, that, uh, the noun sense is I already am. So when I became a Christian, I was set apart by God. I asked to be. God, set me apart. I am setting my life apart. It's consecrated. It's for you. It's a sacrifice. Okay? But that act of dedication is a daily thing. We get to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 is where we'll be. If you have a Bible app or a Bible, go ahead and get it out. There, a scribe who has become very impressed with Jesus' answers to these deep theological questions where they, uh, the religious leaders of his time seem to think that they can trip him up or get him to... Uh, make a mistake in some way that it might bring threat to his life or, or get him disregarded as a teacher. They come to him and they try to trap him and he keeps wiggling out of each one and actually answering in ways that leave them all kind of dumbfounded at what a great answer it was. In Mark 12, the text says this, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which one is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Against, uh, there is no commandment greater than these. For the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at what it means to love God with everything, to be dedicated to Him, to have that as the single focus of our life. How that works, how it benefits us, but more importantly, why God desires it for us, and then talk about some of the habits that lead us to being able to build a way of life that not only demonstrates our commitment to God, but allows us to build the kind of life that when God looks down, He says, well done. He looks down and He's pleased. The kind of life that actually matters in the world that we're in and allows you and I to be the most uh, the transcendent versions of ourselves, ourselves as God intended us 
to be when he knit us together in our mother's womb. So today we're going to be a little foundational, but that's okay. Every house needs to be built well with a good foundation, all right? So we're going to start here and then head forth, all right? Four habits I have for you today. Number one, dedicate yourself. Now you may go, yeah, I got that part. No, here's what I mean. I don't mean, um, you know, dedicate yourself like, like you're signing up for a gym membership. I'm talking about like laser focus, doing it officially, meaning giving your life to Jesus Christ, if you haven't done that yet, so that your life is set apart, and then rededicating yourself today and each day forward saying, God, you are the most important thing in my life. You are what I eat, drink, and sleep. You are the thing that matters most to me in this world. Bringing you glory and bringing you pleasure is what matters the most to me. Those kinds of things. And, and not just saying it, but that then becoming the way of life to where when you wake up, that's your priority. When you go to bed, that's your priority. In your marriage, it's your priority. Raising your kids, it's your priority. In your dating relationships, it's your priority. In how you handle your money, it's your priority. How you handle your, your, your uh, sexual purity and your thought world, it comes first. It transforms everything that you do. Many of us approach God like he's our parent and we're in college, all right? Now, you know, those of you who have college kids, or you, maybe you are a college kid, here's how this works. Go away to college, and you, you call home, essentially, for two reasons, okay? One, you need money. Number two, you need money. Okay, those are your two reasons that people call home, Right? And maybe you call when it's dad's birthday or mom's birthday if one of the parents sends you a text to remind you that it's your mom or dad's birthday. So you go, hey, you know what? Uh, special occasions or whatever, maybe I'll call. But I usually typically call when I need something. Okay? People treat God in a similar way. I show up on the special days. I'm always there on Christmas Eve and Easter. And then when I need something, I reach out and I, I call him. I do something. I show up, swing by the house to get my laundry done, do all these other things, and then I go back to school. Now, in one way, that's okay because God loves giving good gifts to his kids, just like I don't mind blessing my daughter who's in college or whatever. But it also is not, that's not how the relationship's supposed to be, right? You want something depressing? Check this one out. I know that's why you came, right? You want to be depressed? <laughs> Check this one out. By the time, the experts say, by the time that your child hits 18, if they go to college away, you have already spent 90% of all the time you will ever spend with your child in your life, 90% is gone, right? So if they're right, then I got 10% left of all my total hours with my child, right? Now, that on the one hand makes me excited. No, I'm kidding. It makes me sad, right? Because I'm like, like, oh man, it's like my, my, my daughter, you know? So, so whenever, whenever she calls, I pick up the phone. I love to bless my daughter, Okay. On the other hand, her relationship to me, in order for it to benefit her and I both, it has to be closer and deeper than that. And when she comes home, she can't just assume, well, it's a big treat for dad that I'm here. It's just like when you walk into church or you pray, oh boy, God sure is lucky today that I'm here, you know, or those kind of things. It can't work that way. It's not how it's supposed to be. And then subsequently, when God is treated that way, often the church is treated like Planet Fitness, 
Planet Fitness is a, uh, you know, you go a few key times a year, maybe New Year's, gyms are all crowded right now. Come back in March, you're going to be empty, all right? Start your membership in March when all the sales happen because nobody's showing up. January, everybody's there. Summertime, hey, everybody's going to be in a swimsuit and we feel embarrassed, so we go back to the gym. Back to school maybe or whatever. Hey, I got to get fit and ready for school so I look good there. Hey, it's almost Christmas time. I'm going to put a down payment on my gut so I can eat what I want and I go to the gym. So we do that. We throw a few bucks in there, you know, every month and uh, we do our thing. We go home. We're glad it's there, but it's not the center of our life. We're not really that dedicated to it. And if I have a bad experience here or there, I can go to another gym. It's all the same to me, same weights, same machines. But what makes me choose this gym is, is its building or its locker rooms or most likely it's how much it costs me. And what I want is the best experience for the lowest cost. And that is dysfunctional. So what... Scripture is trying to tell us, and even Jesus says here in Mark 12, God is not our parent in the sense that we desperately need him only when we need him. The church isn't planet fitness. God is creator of the universe, mighty in power, and yet at the same time, my closest friend. And because I believe in Jesus, his son, because I believe that he means me no harm, because I know that he's promised me life abundant, I obey what he says, and I do it with great joy. And when I'm told that the greatest commandment, the greatest use of my life is to learn how to love God with everything, heart, mind, soul, strength, I don't resent it. I don't get mad about it. I'm actually thrilled that somebody was, was kind enough, that God was gracious enough to share it with me. It's not that I have to. It's that I get to. Our dedication to Jesus begins with formal dedication, if you will. Helmut Tielicke a theologian wrote, he said, the Christian stands not under the dictatorship of a legalistic you ought, but in the magnetic field of Christian freedom under the empowering of the you may. We get to do this. I'm able, by the grace of God and by the fact that Jesus tore away the veil through his death, I'm able to know God in ways that my ancestors could only fathom. I mean, I mean couldn't even fathom. The thing that scripture would say, angels long to look into the things that I have access to by the blood of Jesus. So the first thing I do is I get serious about it. I dedicate myself as a noun and as a verb. Number two, this is where we're going to get a little touchy, but that's okay. We're all friends and brothers and sisters. Cut it off. Now, what do you mean by that? I'm just going to read this text from the Sermon on the Mount. This is how Jesus talks about it. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You've heard it said... You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What is he saying? He's saying, guys, if you have something going on in your heart, your mind, your life that is causing you resistance, to stumble, to sin, then you do whatever you have to do to get rid of it. You don't dabble with it. You don't play with it. You don't continue to mess around with it. You cut it off. You get rid of it. For some of us, it means, you know, you've got a problem with, with insecurity or fear. 
You get on, you know, you get on your phone at night and you see how wonderful everybody else's lives seem to be and how perfectly adjusted and, and how much more uh, fit they are than you or how much, you know, it seems like they're doing better. Their kids are more well adjusted or whatever. And you go to bed every night sad and depressed or whatever. Cut it off. Stop letting Satan pour lies into your ears at bedtime. Believe in what God says about you. Believe that you are who he says you are and stop doing that. You know, it's funny. I had a a bit, I, I bite my nails. I st- I, I've been doing it since I was five. I quite literally was taught by my sister. She literally sat me down because she had started biting her nails and tra- taught me to do it when I was like five. So I, I don't do it a ton anymore, but I do it when I'm bored usually or I'm not thinking. My, my hands just kind of drift into my mouth, like long road trips where you get stuck in trees and stuff. You know, by the time I'm done, I realize, bam, I bite my nails a lot. When I was in college, my roommate named Austin he did the same thing, and he decided he would get this stuff that you put on your fingernails. It tastes terrible. Any of you guys ever done that? Anybody? Oh, either, or, you do, or you're too good to bite your nails. I get it. Okay. Well, those of us sufferers, we, we, he takes this stuff, and it's kind of yellow in tint, so it doesn't look real, not great look for your fingers. It makes you look like all your nails are rotting or whatever, but it tastes horrible. So if he would put his finger in his mouth, not thinking about it, it would just like, like, explode your head level nasty taste, okay? And so I would hear him in other parts of the house, you know, going, ah, and he would, you know, cuss or do something like that. And I, that let me know, he, he stuck his finger in his mouth, right? And I go, I remember going, Austin, that's stupid, you know? That's disgusting, man. You look, your nails looks awful, you know, or whatever. And we would go through this. Well, let's say this. One of us still bites his nails and the other one does not. He did what he had to do. Victor Hugo, the famous uh, writer, in the summer of 1830, he was facing an impossible writing deadline. He had squandered the year that they gave him to write the novel. So uh, his publisher comes to him and says, hey, Vic, how's the novel going? And he's like, oh, oopsie. I have basically been partying for the last year and haven't written a thing. And they said, all right, Victor, Here's what we're going to do. You now have six months to write it. If you don't, then you have to pay us back your bonuses, all that stuff, and the cancel, the contract's canceled. So Hugo knows that he loves going out and partying and hanging out and doing other stuff. So he comes up with a strange solution. He collects all of his clothes together, and he asks his assistant to lock them away in a large chest. He's left with nothing to wear except a shawl, okay? Birthday suit and a shawl. Everything else he owns as a piece of clothing is locked away in this chest until he finishes the book. And the reason is it kept him from leaving his room. He couldn't leave until whatever, unless he wanted to be naked wherever he was. And I guess in the 1830s, I was not a, that was a faux pas. So he does it, and guess what? In... Uh, two weeks early, he delivers The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and it's become a classic today. He did it by just saying, I don't care what I have to do. I have to figure something out to do this. It's a version of cut it off. There are a lot of ways to um, all the habits people, people who write and study habits, they call it commitment devices. And they talk about people, you know, uh, boxers, they have to make weight, and they take their wallet with everything, all their cash and all their cards, and they give it to their assistants or whoever, and they don't, so that they can't buy fast food with it. 
Um, they will, um, you know, people I've seen do all sorts of different things, and there are spiritual uh, corollaries to these. Uh, I have a friend who will not stay in a hotel room with a television in it because he struggled with pornography in the past. And so he'll call the hotel and he'll say, hey, I'd like a room at your place, but I need a room with no television in it. They say, sorry, we don't have any of those. And he says, okay, I can't stay there. Can you have it removed? No, we don't do that. Okay, bye. Okay, well, that makes his life pretty hard in some places, right? But that's what he does. And this is the idea. Cut it off. Why? Because I'm dedicated. I'm set apart. I'm holy. And that's how I'm going to get through this, right? There are other people who do other things. If you've got to, you got to, you, you struggle with um, lust or greed or any of these things, there is something there that you can do to make bad habits hard. Does that make sense? Usually what we do is we organize our lives in such a way that we make the good stuff difficult and the bad stuff easy. Where we're led around by our desires because we don't have a plan. It's like going on a spontaneous road trip of life. So I go wherever, if I'm hungry, I eat. If I, uh, if I want to act this way, I act that way. If I feel this way, and so we, we, we kind of gotten into this thing where we feel like our emotions can dictate to us everything that we do and that we're victims and we can't control anything that we do, which is really a lie of the devil. That's what it is. The one who is in you, hear me here, is greater than the one who's in the world. Now, the exception to that is if you don't have the one who is greater in you. Now you're overmatched. But part of what loving God with heart, mind, soul, and strength does is it makes the power of God even stronger. It makes the power of the Holy Spirit burn brighter than if we just kind of mess around the edges. We're not dedicated. We're slightly inclined toward God, or we're uh, you know, mildly interested in God as opposed to dedicated. If you find yourself continually struggling to follow through on your plans, take a page from good old Vic Hugo and cut it off. You can voluntarily ask, for instance, to be banned from uh, casinos. I know people have done this. They call casinos, they got a gambling problem. They call every casino within driving distance of their house and say, put me on the banned list, please, voluntarily. Um, you know, all right, we're going to move on. Number three, this is a weird one. Hear me out. Heart transplant. A heart transplant. Here's the sense in which I mean it. In Ezekiel chapter 36, he says this, God's trying to help his people understand there's a new day coming. And if they want it, he will give it to them. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you, and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. We often trust our heart too much. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Proverbs says, guard your heart above all things, because uh, they know, the writer knows, hey, we're vulnerable. Our hearts are not impervious. And what God is saying is like, look, I can, I can just swap out the whole thing for you. I can take that heart of stone, that one that doesn't want to obey God, the one that lacks humility, the one that is greedy and lustful and hateful and uh, prone to wander, as the old hymn writer said, and I can replace it with a heart of flesh, with a new one, a new spirit. 
Okay, that is something, how do I do that? That's something you ask God for. That's something you pray to God for. That's something you seek. God, take this stubborn, rude, um, critical heart of mine and replace it with one that brings you glory and honor. And the reason we do it is because we need the power of God. See, none of this would be necessary if we were half as good at managing ourselves through willpower as we think we are. We're not. It takes power from above. It takes something supernatural. It takes something that humbles us enough to say, you know what, God, I know I can't do this on my own. I need the power of your spirit to do this. And in fact, Father, if you want to do a, a whole heart transplant, I'm asking you, God, to change my heart. So when we talk about loving God with our heart, and by the way, let me throw this caveat in there. When, when the Bible uses that term in this context, it's really talking mostly about the will and the desires. It's not, it doesn't mean our per se, our physical heart. It's, it's talking about the will and our desires, not our emotions, though it can include that. It's the innermost part, the center of who we are. That's what it's talking about. And so as you look at, okay, how do I learn to love God with everything? The rhythm goes. We dedicate ourselves to God. We cut out or off the things that would hinder us and cause us to stumble. We continue by asking God to replace our, our kind of defective heart, if you will, with a new one, a new heart, and then we do this. This is the hardest of them all. Trust God for results. Um, I say this often here at NBC. Our job is obedience. God's job is results. Okay. God asks his people to march around Jericho, at the Battle of Jericho. March around that wall seven days. First six days, go around it once, don't say anything. Day seven, go around it seven times. And when you get there, uh, blow the horn and yell, and the wall will come down. What if they'd stopped after lap six? What, what if... Moses leads them out of Egypt, and when everybody's saying, God just brought us to the edge of the Red Sea to die, and God says, don't worry, Moses, take your stick, put it in the water. I'll take it from there. What if he just said, that's great, but I know seas don't part when, just because I have a stick and I put it in the water. See, at Jericho, what makes them successful is lap seven. Not partial obedience. Not obedience until it makes sense, as long as it makes sense to me, but then when I don't see the results I want, then I change. Um, Moses, the same magic stick that he strikes the Red Sea with in the, in the sea parts, same man, same stick, gets angry, and he strikes a rock in the wilderness in anger, sins, and is forbidden from entering the promised land because of it. What's the difference? Same guy, same stick. Obedience is the difference. Obedience. Two different results. One, you're banned from the promised land. The other, I'm dividing the Red Sea. Walk through it. I'm going to save you again. You thought what I just did in Egypt was great? Watch this one. Because now, I'm not only going to deliver you out of slavery, 
I'm going to take care of your former slave masters once and for all right now. And so stand back and behold the glory of God, right? That willingness to obey, to keep walking in obedience, even when the results don't necessarily look the way that we had hoped. Now, there's a fellow named James Clear. He wrote a book called Atomic Habits, and he talks, this is one of the best ways I've, I can think of. This is going to look more complicated than this. Go ahead and put this graph up. Okay, he calls this the valley of disappointment. I love that. So as you can see, you got time on one side, you got results on the other. You got what you think should happen, and then you get what actually happens. And the gap between those two, this right here, is what he calls the valley of disappointment. I bet you all know what that is. I've been going to the gym for three weeks now, and I can't see my abs yet. You know? You know what? I went to church for two weeks straight, and my heart is still messed up. That stuff doesn't work. Valley of disappointment. All right? The gap, result, time. What I think should happen and what actually happens. And man, as a pastor, I will just tell you, I see people quit on God all the time. And it's not a struggle I'm unfamiliar with, right? To say, all right, God, we're doing this, we're obeying, we're walking in faith, and we're going to keep doing it as long as we have to, Lord. But, boy, it sure seems like we're on lap 20 around the wall of Jericho. When's this going to When's this going to change or whatever? And the temptation to say, okay, then I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Kind of like the Israelites did a little bit later on by saying, you know what? We need, we need a golden calf. So they build the golden calf. Or they go, you know what we need is a king, like all the other people do. God says, I'm your king. They go, yeah, but I mean a real king. And he says, okay, well, here's what's going to happen then. They're going to come in. They're going to be brutal. They're going to oppress you. They're going to let you down, and they're going to bring you problems. Okay. Cool. All right. Because of this right here, the valley of disappointment. It is a brutal, brutal wilderness indeed, although ironically, usually very short. But it doesn't take us very long to give up or to try to take matters into our own hands, or to feel like we know better. And so we end up like an ice cube heated to 31 degrees, just about to get there, just about to melt. You can't tell, though. And so we go, hey, that's not melting. It's one degree from melting, one degree. And so matters of the heart, the transformation of our hearts, that is a lifelong journey. That is something that we don't just go, okay, you know what? I've been trying this now for a few days and I'm still doing the same things I always did. I still feel as crummy as I did before. I still, whatever, okay? This is a pilgrimage. It is a lifelong journey. It is a quest of the spirit. And the good news is God offers us his help. Again, remember, he says, I will replace that heart, that quitting heart, with a big, strong, faithful heart. Our job's obedience. Love God. 
be dedicated to God in a NURB sense. <laughs> Both you are dedicated and you're dedicated. San Antonio Spurs, <clears throat> one of the most um, prolific NBA franchises in history. They have a quote from social reformer Jacob Reese hanging in their locker room. It says this, when nothing seems to help, I go and look at a stonecutter hammering away at his rock, perhaps a hundred times without as much as a crack showing in it. Yet at the 101st blow, it will split in two, and I know it was not that last blow that did it, but all that had gone before. I had a friend this morning uh, I was texting with. He had somebody ask him, how long does it take you to prepare a sermon? And he said, my whole life. And I was like, yeah, that's about right. Stonecutter, right? There are no formulas. As Dallas Willard wrote in Renovation of the Heart, there are no formulas, no definitive how-tos for growth in the inner character of Jesus. Such growth is a way of relentless seeking. But there are many things we can do to place ourselves at the disposal of God. And if with all of our hearts we truly seek him, we shall surely find him. Obedience. Result. Seek me with all your heart and you'll find me. We do the seeking. He does the finding. See? So my prayer for all of us as we kind of go into this, okay, what if we were going to be dedicated to God? I mean, the irony is like most of us, and if, if you see one fully dedicated Christian walking around you, you know who they are. They're not hard to spot. If I ask you, you know, close your eyes, think of the most dedicated Christian you know. Yeah, I'd give you 10 seconds, you'd have somebody in your head, maybe two or three. I mean, imagine a whole church full of them out there just blazing and finding the people that we think are dedicated, finding a higher plane than they've ever known. And what God's saying to us is, hey, guys, look, I want, I desire you to love me with heart, mind, soul, and strength, not just for my own glory, but also for your own abundance. If you think back, most of us in our lives, those of us who have been in the faith a while, and you go, okay, what were the happiest moments of your life where you felt like on a daily basis you were happy, happiest? Most of the time, you will think about seasons in your life when you were closest to God. And that's not a surprise to God. It's not a surprise to Jesus. It's not a surprise to most people who walk in the faith for a length of time. So consider today an invitation. Next week, we'll do habits of the mind, habits of the soul, habits of strength, and how we can build these lives. But today, let's dedicate ourselves. Let's cut out the sin that so easily entangles the things that are holding us back. Let's ask God to do the heart transplant. God, I want to I want to know you at a level that I can't even imagine is possible right now. I want to be dedicated to you. I want my life to reflect your glory. I want my mind to reflect your glory. I want the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> if I were a tree to be hanging so uh, abundantly on my branches that all the branches would be sagged over and touching the ground. 
if I were a bank, there wouldn't be enough room in the vault for all the spiritual riches I would have, Father. That's what I'm trying to do to bring you glory and honor. And so if you're there, and by the way, if you are trapped in the valley of disappointment, and you're like, I've been trying this. You may right now even say, it might be going, yeah, well, you've tried this before. And by February, you were already, you'd already failed. Okay. Blah, 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 blah. He's nowhere near as strong as the power and the spirit of God. So this morning, don't listen to his lies. Listen to the, to the truth of God's word and what he expects for you and what he anticipates for you. All right. So right now, uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Um, we have some of the elements handy, uh, bread and cup. If you didn't get them on the way in and you would like some, just put your hand in the air. We'll bring them to you. No big thing. You got a couple over here on the, this side. We do this every week at New Vintage Church. We do it. The early, early Christians did it. Jesus instituted this uh, right before his death. And it's a time where we remember him, what he did for us. And we do it with bread and cup, which represents the body and blood of Christ. <clears throat> and so for those of you who are here today uh, and need to dedicate yourself to the Lord, maybe right now we take this Lord's Supper and we're saying yes with it. We're saying yes to the one who said yes to us first. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you with all of our being. Father, for the things that distract us, for the things that have become counterfeit gods to us, Father, for the, the affections of our heart that are being drained off by things, by sin or by insecurity or by hopelessness or by... Uh, Father, this may be another <laughs> tough year. And if it is, Father, we want you by our side. We want you leading the way. We want you giving us whatever power, Father, you, you can give us, Father. We come before you humbly saying we can't do it alone. We need you. Father, if it's a great year and you're getting ready to take our life to new places, new heights or whatever, Father, we, our hearts leap within us and we say yes. And we say, take us there. We say, Father, we're yours. And we say it with bread and cup now. We say it together. In the name of Jesus, the one who makes it all possible. Amen.